Section 5 of Men Like Gods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Men Like Gods by H. G. Wells. Book One, Chapter the Fifth The Governance and History of Utopia. One. Came a pause. The earthlings looked at one another, and their gaze seemed to converge upon Mr. Cecil Burley. That statesman feigned to be unaware of the general expectation. Rupert, he said, won't you? I reserve my comments, said Mr. Catskill. Father Amerton, you are accustomed to treat of other worlds. Not in your presence, Mr. Cecil, no. But what am I to tell them? What you think of it, said Mr. Barnstable. Exactly, said Mr. Catskill. Tell them what you think of it. No one else appeared to be worthy of consideration. Mr. Burley rose slowly and walked thoughtfully to the center of the semicircle. He grasped his coat lapels and remained for some moments with face downcast, as if considering what he was about to say. "'Mr. Serpentine,' he began at last, raising a candid countenance and regarding the blue sky above the distant lake through his glasses. "'Ladies and gentlemen—' He was about to make a speech, as though he was at a Primrose League garden party, or Geneva. It was preposterous, and yet what else was there to be done? "'I must confess, sir, that although I am by no means a novice at public speaking, I find myself on this occasion somewhat at a loss. Your admirable discourse, sir, simple, direct, lucid, compact, and rising at times to passages of unaffected eloquence, has set me a pattern I would fain follow, and before which, in all modesty, I quail. You ask me to tell you, as plainly and clearly as possible, the outlined facts as we conceive them about this kindred world out of which with so little premeditation we have come to you. So far as my poor powers of understanding or discussing such recondite matters go, I do not think I can better or indeed supplement in any way your marvellous exposition of the mathematical aspects of the case. What you have told us embodies the latest, finest thoughts of terrestrial science, and goes, indeed, far beyond our current ideas. On certain matters, in, for example, the relationship of time and gravitation, I feel bound to admit that I do not go with you. But that is rather a failure to understand your position than any positive dissent. Upon the broader aspects of the case there need be no difficulties between us. We accept your main proposition unreservedly. Namely, that we conceive ourselves to be living in a parallel universe to yours, on a planet the very brother of your own, indeed quite amazingly like yours, having regard to all the possible contrasts we might have found here. We are attracted by, and strongly disposed to accept your view, that our system is, in all probability, a little less seasoned and mellowed by the touch of time than yours short, perhaps, by some hundreds or some thousands of years of your experiences. Assuming this, it is inevitable, sir, 
that a certain humility should mingle in our attitude towards you. As your juniors, it becomes us not to instruct but to learn. It is for us to ask, What have you done? To what have you reached? Rather than to display to you with an artless arrogance all that still remains for us to learn and do. No, said Mr. Barnstable to himself, but half audible, this is a dream. If it were anyone else. He rubbed his knuckles into his eyes and opened them again and there he was still, sitting next to Mr. Mush in the midst of these Olympian divinities. And Mr. Burley, that polished skeptic, who never believed, was never astonished, was leaning forward on his toes and speaking, speaking with the assurance of a man who has made ten thousand speeches. He could not have been more sure of himself and his audience in the Gwidall Hall in London. And they were understanding him which was absurd. There was nothing to do but to fall in with this stupendous absurdity, and sit and listen. Sometimes Mr. Barnstable's mind wandered altogether from what Mr. Burley was saying. Then it returned and hung desperately to his discourse. In his halting, parliamentary way, his hands trifling with his glasses or clinging to the lapels of his coat, Mr. Burley was giving Utopia a brief account of the world of men seeking to be elementary and lucid and reasonable, telling them of states and of empires, of wars and the great war, of economic organization and disorganization, of revolutions and Bolshevism, of the terrible Russian famine that was beginning, of the difficulties of finding honest statesmen and officials, and of the unhelpfulness of newspapers, of all the dark and troubled spectacle of human life. Serpentine had used the term the last age of confusion, and Mr. Burley had seized upon the phrase and was making much of it. It was a great oratorical impromptu. It must have gone on for an hour, and the Utopians listened with keen, attentive faces, now and then nodding their acceptance and recognition of this statement or that. Very like, would come tapping into Mr. Barnstable's brain, with us also, in the age of confusion. At last Mr. Burley, with the steady deliberation of an old parliamentary hand, drew to his end. Compliments. He bowed. He had done. Mr. Mush startled everyone by vigorous hand-clapping in which no one else joined. The tension in Mr. Barnstable's mind had become intolerable. He leapt to his feet. 2. He stood making those weak, propitiatory gestures that come so naturally to the inexperienced speaker. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he said, "'Utopians! Mr. Burley! I crave your pardon for a moment. There is a little matter. Urgent!' For a brief interval he was speechless. Then he found attention and encouragement in the eye of Earthred. "'Something I don't understand. Something incredible.' I mean, incompatible. The little rift turns everything into a fantastic phantasmagoria. The intelligence in Earthred's eye was very encouraging. Mr. Barnstable abandoned any attempt to address the company as a whole, and spoke directly to Earthred. You live in Utopia, hundreds of thousands of years in advance of us. How is it that you are able to talk contemporary English, 
to use exactly the same language that we do. I ask you, how is that? It is incredible. It jars. It makes a dream of you. And yet you are not a dream. It makes me feel, almost, insane." Earthred smiled pleasantly. "'We don't speak English,' he said. Mr. Barnstable felt the ground slipping from under his feet. "'But I hear you speaking English,' he said. "'Nevertheless, we do not speak it,' said Earthred. He smiled still more broadly. "'We don't, for ordinary purposes, speak anything.' Mr. Barnstable, with his brain resigning its functions, maintained his pose of deferential attention. "'Ages ago,' Earthred continued, "'we certainly used to speak languages. We made sounds, and we heard sounds. People used to think, and then chose and arranged words and uttered them. The hearer heard, noted, and retranslated the sounds into ideas. Then, in some manner, which we still do not understand perfectly, people began to get the idea before it was clothed in words and uttered in sounds. They began to hear in their minds as soon as the speaker had arranged his ideas and before he put them into word symbols even in his own mind. They knew what he was going to say before he said it. This direct transmission presently became common. It was found out that with a little effort most people could get over to each other in this fashion to some extent, and the new mode of communication was developed systematically. That is what we do now habitually in this world. We think directly to each other. We determine to convey the thought, and it is conveyed at once, provided the distance is not too great. We use sounds in this world now only for poetry and pleasure in moments of emotion or to shout at a distance or with animals, not for the transmission of ideas from human mind to kindred human mind any more. When I think to you, the thought, so far as it finds corresponding ideas and suitable words in your mind, is reflected in your mind. My thought clothes itself in words in your mind, which words you seem to hear and naturally enough in your own language and your own habitual phrases. Very probably the members of your party are hearing what I am saying to you, each with his own individual difference of vocabulary and phrasing." Mr. Barnstable had been punctuating this discourse with sharp, intelligent nods, coming now and then to the verge of interruption. Now he broke out with, "'And that is why occasionally as, for instance, when Mr. Serpentine made his wonderful explanation just now, when you soar into ideas of which we haven't even a shadow in our minds, we just hear nothing at all." "'Are there such gaps?' asked Earthred. "'Many, I fear, for all of us,' said Mr. Burley. "'It's like being deaf in spots,' said Lady Stella. "'Large spots!' Father Amerton nodded agreement and that is why we cannot be clear whether you are called Earthred or Adam, and why I have found myself confusing Arden and Green-trees and Forest in my mind." "'I hope that now you are mentally more at your ease,' said Earthred. "'Oh, quite,' said Mr. Barnstable. "'Quite. And all things considered, 
it is really very convenient for us that there should be this method of transmission. For otherwise, I do not see how we could have avoided weeks of linguistic bother, first principles of our respective grammars, logic, scientifics, and so forth, boring stuff for the most part, before we could have got to anything like our present understanding. A very good point indeed, said Mr. Burley, turning round to Mr. Barnstable in a very friendly way. A very good point indeed. I should never have noted it if you had not called my attention to it. It is quite extraordinary. I had not noted anything of this, this difference. I was occupied, I am bound to confess, by my own thoughts. I suppose they were speaking English. Took it for granted. 3. It seemed to Mr. Barnstable that this wonderful experience was now so complete that there remained nothing more to wonder at except its absolute credibility. He sat in this beautiful little building, looking out upon dreamland flowers and the sunlit lake, amidst this strange mingling of weekend English costumes and this more than Olympian nudity that had already ceased to startle him. He listened and occasionally participated in the long informal conversation that now ensued. It was a discussion that brought to light the most amazing and fundamental differences of moral and social outlook. Yet everything had now assumed a reality that made it altogether natural to suppose that he would presently go home to write about it in the Liberal, and tell his wife, as much as might be advisable at the time, about the manners and costumes of this hitherto undiscovered world. He had not even a sense of intervening distances. Sydenham might have been just round the corner. Presently two pretty young girls made tea and an equipage among the rhododendra and brought it round to people. Tea. It was what we should call China tea, very delicate, and served in little cups without handles, Chinese fashion, but it was real and very refreshing tea. The earlier curiosities of the earthlings turned upon methods of government. This was perhaps natural in the presence of two statesmen as Mr. Burley and Mr. Catskill. "'What form of government do you have?' asked Mr. Burley. Is it a monarchy, or an autocracy, or a pure democracy? Do you separate the executive and legislative? And is there one central government for all your planet, or are there several governing centers? It was conveyed to Mr. Burley and his companions with some difficulty that there was no central government in Utopia at all. But surely, said Mr. Burley, there is someone, or something, some council or bureau or what not somewhere with which the final decision rests in case of collective action for the common welfare, some ultimate seat and organ of sovereignty, it seems to me there must be. No, the Utopians declared, there was no such concentration of authority in their world. In the past there had been, but it had long since diffused back into the general body of the community. Decisions in regard to any particular matter were made by the people who know most about that matter. But suppose it is a decision that has to be generally observed, a rule affecting the public health, for example, who would enforce it? It would not need to be enforced. Why should it? But suppose someone refused to obey your regulation? We should inquire why he or she did not conform there might be some exceptional reason. But failing that, 
we should make an inquiry into his mental and moral health. The mine doctor takes the place of the policeman, said Mr. Burley. I should prefer the policeman, said Mr. Rupert Caskill. You would, Rupert, said Mr. Burley, as who should say, got you that time. Then do you mean to say, he continued, addressing the utopians with an expression of great intelligence, that your affairs are all managed by special bodies or organizations, one scarcely knows what to call them, without any coordination of their activities? The activities of our world, said Earthred, are all coordinated to secure the general freedom. We have a number of intelligences directed to the general psychology of the race, and to the interaction of one collective function upon another. "'Well, isn't that group of intelligences a governing class?' said Mr. Burley. "'Not in the sense that they exercise any arbitrary will,' said Earthred. "'They deal with general relations, that is all. But they rank no higher, they have no more precedence on that account, than a philosopher has over a scientific specialist.' "'This is a republic indeed,' said Mr. Burley. "'But how it works, and how it came about, I cannot imagine. Your state is probably a highly socialistic one.' "'You still live in a world in which nearly everything except the air, the high roads, the high seas, and the wilderness is privately owned?' "'We do,' said Mr. Catskill. "'Owned and competed for.' "'We have been through that stage.' We found at last that private property in all but very personal things is an intolerable nuisance to mankind. We got rid of it. An artist or a scientific man has complete control of all the material he needs. We all own our own tools and appliances and have rooms and places of our own, but there is no property for trade or speculation. All this militant property, this property of maneuver, has been quite got rid of. But how we got rid of it is a long story. It was not done in a few years. The exaggeration of private property was an entirely natural and necessary stage in the development of human nature. It led at last to monstrous results, but it was only through these monstrous and catastrophic results that men learnt the need and nature of the limitations of private property. Mr. Burley had assumed an attitude which was obviously habitual to him. He sat very low in his chair, with his long legs crossed in front of him and the thumb and fingers of one hand placed with meticulous exactness against those of the other. "'I must confess,' he said, "'that I am most interested in the peculiar form of anarchism which seems to prevail here. Unless I misunderstand you completely—' Every man attends to his own business as the servant of the state. I take it you have—you must correct me if I am wrong—a great number of people concerned in the production and distribution and preparation of food. They inquire, I assume, into the needs of the world. They satisfy them, and they are a law unto themselves in their way of doing it. They conduct researches, they make experiments. Nobody compels, obliges, restrains, or prevents them. People talk to them about it," said Earthred, with a faint smile. 
and again others produce and manufacture and study metals for all mankind and are also a law unto themselves. Others, again, see to the habitability of your world, plan and arrange these delightful habitations, say who shall use them and how they shall be used. Others pursue pure science. Others experiment with sensory and imaginative possibilities and are artists. Others, again, teach. They are very important, said Likeness. And they do it in harmony, in due proportion without either a central legislature or executive. I will admit that all this seems admirable, but impossible. Nothing of the sort has ever been suggested yet in the world from which we come. Something of the sort was suggested long ago by the Guild Socialists, said Mr. Barnstable. Dear me, said Mr. Burley, I know very little about the Guild Socialists. Who were they? Tell me. Mr. Barnstable tacitly declined that task. "'The idea is quite familiar to our younger people,' he said. Lasky calls it the pluralistic state, as distinguished from the monistic state in which sovereignty is concentrated. Even the Chinese have it. A Pekin professor, Mr. S. C. Chang, has written a pamphlet on what he calls professionalism. I read it only a few weeks ago. He sent it to the office of the Liberal. He points out how undesirable it is and how unnecessary for China to pass through a phase of democratic politics on the Western model. He wants China to go right straight on to a collateral independence of functional classes, mandarins, industrials, agricultural workers and so forth, much as we seem to find it here. Though that, of course, involves an educational revolution. Decidedly. The germ of what you call anarchism here is also in the air where we come from." "'Dear me,' said Mr. Burley, looking more intelligent and appreciative than ever. "'And is that so? I had no idea.'" 4. The conversation continued desultory in form, and yet the exchange of ideas was rapid and effective. Quite soon, as it seemed to Mr. Barnstable, an outline of the history of Utopia from the last age of confusion onward shaped itself in his mind. The more he learnt of that last age of confusion, the more it seemed to resemble the present time on earth. In those days the Utopians had worn abundant clothing and lived in towns quite after the earthly fashion. A fortunate conspiracy of accidents, rather than any set design, had opened for them some centuries of opportunity and expansion. Climatic phases and political chances had smiled upon the race after a long period of recurrent shortage, pestilence, and destructive warfare. For the first time the Utopians had been able to explore the whole planet on which they lived, and these explorations had brought great virgin areas under the axe, the spade, and the plough. There had been an enormous increase in real wealth and in leisure and liberty. Many thousands of people were lifted out of the normal squalor of human life, to positions in which they could, if they chose, think and act with unprecedented freedom. A few, a sufficient few, did. A vigorous development of scientific inquiry began, and, trailing after it, a multitude of ingenious inventions, produced a great enlargement of practical human power. There had been previous outbreaks of the scientific intelligence in Utopia 
but none before had ever occurred in such favorable circumstances or lasted long enough to come to abundant practical fruition. Now, in a couple of brief centuries, the Utopians, who had hitherto crawled about their planet like sluggish ants, or traveled parasitically on larger and swifter animals, found themselves able to fly rapidly or speak instantaneously to any other point on the planet. They found themselves, too, in possession of mechanical power on a scale beyond all previous experience, and not simply of mechanical power. Physiological and then psychological science followed in the wake of physics and chemistry, and extraordinary possibilities of control over his own body and over his social life dawned upon the utopian. But these things came, when at last they did come, so rapidly and confusingly, that it was only a small minority of people who realized the possibilities, as distinguished from the concrete achievements of this tremendous expansion of knowledge. The rest took the novel inventions as they came, haphazard, with as little adjustment as possible of their thoughts and ways of living to the new necessities these novelties implied. The first response of the general population of Utopia to the prospect of power, leisure, and freedom thus opened out to it was proliferation. It behaved just as senselessly and mechanically as any other animal or vegetable species would have done. It bred until it had completely swamped the ampler opportunity that had opened before it. It spent the great gifts of science as rapidly as it got them, in a mere insensate multiplication of the common life. At one time in the last age of confusion, the population of Utopia had mounted to over two thousand million. "'But what is it now?' asked Mr. Burley. "'About two hundred and fifty million,' the Utopians told him. That had been the maximum population that could live a fully developed life upon the surface of Utopia. But now with increasing resources the population was being increased. A gasp of horror came from Father Amerton. He had been dreading this realization for some time. It struck at his moral foundations. "'And you dare to regulate increase! You control it! Your women consent to bear children as they are needed, or refrain!' "'Of course,' said Earthred. "'Why not?' "'I feared as much,' said Father Amerton, and leaning forward he covered his face with his hands, murmuring, I felt this in the atmosphere, the human stud-farm, refusing to create souls, the wickedness of it! Oh, my God!" Mr. Burley regarded the emotion of the reverend gentleman through his glasses with a slightly shocked expression. He detested catchwords, but Father Amerton stood for very valuable conservative elements in the community. Mr. Burley turned to the Utopian again. This is extremely interesting, he said. Even at present, our earth contrives to carry a population of at least five times that amount. But twenty millions or so will starve this winter. You told us a little while ago, in a place called Russia. And only a very small proportion of the rest are leading what even you would call full and spacious lives? Nevertheless, the contrast is very striking said Mr. Burley. "'It is terrible,' said Father Amerton. The overcrowding of the planet in the last age of confusion was, these utopians insisted, the fundamental evil out of which all the others that afflicted the race arose. 
an overwhelming flood of newcomers poured into the world and swamped every effort the intelligent minority could make to educate a sufficient proportion of them to meet the demands of the new and still rapidly changing conditions of life. And the intelligent minority was not itself in any position to control the racial destiny. These great masses of population that have been blundered into existence, swayed by damaged and decaying traditions and amenable to the crudest suggestions, were the natural prey and support of every adventurer with a mind blatant enough and a conception of success coarse enough to appeal to them. The economic system, clumsily and convulsively reconstructed to meet the new conditions of mechanical production and distribution, became more and more a cruel and impudent exploitation of the multitudinous congestion of the common man by the predatory and acquisitive few. That all-too-common common man was hustled through misery and subjection from his cradle to his grave. He was cajoled and lied to. He was bought, sold, and dominated by an impudent minority, bolder and no doubt more energetic, but in all other respects no more intelligent than himself. It was difficult, Earthred said, for a utopian nowadays to convey the monstrous stupidity, wastefulness, and vulgarity to which these rich and powerful men of the last age of confusion attained. "'We will not trouble you,' said Mr. Burley. "'Unhappily, we know, we know. Only too well do we know.' Upon this festering, excessive mass of population, Disasters descended, at last, like wasps upon a heap of rotting fruit. It was its natural, inevitable destiny. A war that affected nearly the whole planet dislocated its flimsy financial system and most of its economic machinery beyond any possibility of repair. Civil wars and clumsily conceived attempts at social revolution continued the disorganization. A series of years of bad weather accentuated the general shortage. The exploiting adventurers, too stupid to realize what had happened, continued to cheat and hoodwink the commonality and burke any rally of honest men, as wasps will continue to eat even after their bodies have been cut away. The effort to make passed out of utopian life, triumphantly superseded by the effort to get. Production dwindled down towards the vanishing point. Accumulated wealth vanished an overwhelming system of debt, a swarm of creditors, morally incapable of helpful renunciation, crushed out all fresh initiative. The long diastole in utopian affairs, that had begun with the great discoveries, passed into a phase of rapid systole. What plenty and pleasure was still possible in the world was filched all the more greedily by the adventurers of finance and speculative business. Organized science had long since been commercialized, and was applied now chiefly to a hunt for profitable patents and the forestalling of necessary supplies. The neglected lamp of pure science waned, flickered, and seemed likely to go out again altogether, leaving Utopia in the beginning of a new series of dark ages, like those before the age of discovery began. "'It is really very like a gloomy diagnosis of our own outlook.' said Mr. Burley. Extraordinarily like. How Dean Inge would have enjoyed all this! To an infidel of his stamp, no doubt, it would seem most enjoyable, said Father Amerton a little incoherently. 
These comments annoyed Mr. Barnstable, who was urgent to hear more. "'And then,' he said to Erthred, "'what happened?' Five. What happened, Mr. Barnstable gathered, was a deliberate change in utopian thought. A growing number of people were coming to understand that, amidst the powerful and easily released forces that science and organization had brought within reach of man, the old conception of social life in the state, as a limited and legalized struggle of men and women to get the better of one another, was becoming too dangerous to endure, just as the increased dreadfulness of modern weapons was making the separate sovereignty of nations too dangerous to endure. There had to be new ideas and new conventions of human association if history was not to end in disaster and collapse. All societies were based on the limitation by laws and taboos and treaties of the primordial fierce combativeness of the ancestral man-ape. That ancient spirit of self-assertion had now to undergo new restrictions commensurate with the new powers and dangers of the race. The idea of competition to possess, as the ruling idea of intercourse, was, like some ill-controlled furnace, threatening to consume the machine it had formerly driven. The idea of creative service had to replace it. To that idea the human mind and will had to be turned if social life was to be saved. Propositions that had seemed in former ages to be inspired and exalted idealism began now to be recognized not simply as sober psychological truth, but as practical and urgently necessary truth. In explaining this, Erthred explained himself in a manner that recalled to Mr. Barnstable's mind certain very familiar phrases. He seemed to be saying that whosoever would save his life should lose it, and that whosoever would give his life should thereby gain the whole world. Father Amerton's thoughts, it seemed, were also responding in the same manner, for he suddenly interrupted with, "'But what you are saying is a quotation!' Erthred admitted that he had a quotation in mind, a passage from the teachings of a man of great poetic power who had lived long ago in the days of spoken words. He would have proceeded, but Father Amerton was too excited to let him do so. But who was this teacher? he asked. Where did he live? How was he born? How did he die? A picture was flashed upon Mr. Barnstable's consciousness of a solitary-looking, pale-faced figure, beaten and bleeding, surrounded by armored guards, in the midst of a thrusting, jostling, sun-bit crowd which filled a narrow, high-walled street. Behind, some huge, ugly implement was borne along, dipping and swaying with the swaying of the multitude. "'Did he die upon the cross in this world also?' cried Father Amerton. "'Did he die upon the cross?' This prophet in Utopia, they learnt, had died very painfully, but not upon the cross. He had been tortured in some way, but neither the Utopians nor these particular earthlings had sufficient knowledge of the technicalities of torture to get any idea over about that, and then apparently he had been fastened upon a slowly turning wheel and exposed until he died. It was the abominable punishment of a cruel and conquering race and it had been inflicted upon him because his doctrine of universal service had alarmed the rich and dominant who did not serve. 
Mr. Barnstable had a momentary vision of a twisted figure upon that wheel of torture in the blazing sun, and, marvellous triumph over death, out of a world that could do such a deed had come this great and peaceful universal beauty about him. But Father Amerton was pressing his questions. "'But did you not realize who he was? Did not this world suspect?' A great many people thought that this man was a god, but he had been accustomed to call himself merely a son of God or a son of man. Father Amerton stuck to his point. "'But you worship him now?' "'We follow his teaching because it was wonderful and true,' said Earthred. "'But worship?' "'No.' "'But does nobody worship?' "'There were those who worshipped him?' There were those who worshipped him. There were those who quailed before the stern magnificence of his teaching, and yet who had a tormenting sense that he was right in some profound way. So they played a trick upon their own uneasy consciences by treating him as a magical god instead of as a light to their souls. They interwove with his execution ancient traditions of sacrificial kings, Instead of receiving him frankly and clearly and making him a part of their understandings and wills, they pretended to eat him mystically and make him a part of their bodies. They turned his wheel into a miraculous symbol, and they confused it with the equator and the sun and the ecliptic, and indeed with anything else that was round. In cases of ill luck, ill health, or bad weather, it was believed to be very helpful for the believer to describe a circle in the air with the forefinger and since this teacher's memory was very dear to the ignorant multitude because of his gentleness and charity, it was seized upon by cunning and aggressive types who constituted themselves champions and exponents of the wheel, who grew rich and powerful in its name, led people into great wars for its sake, and used it as a cover and justification for envy, hatred, tyranny, and dark desires. Until, at last, men said that, had that ancient prophet come again to Utopia, his own triumphant wheel would have crushed and destroyed him afresh. Father Amerton seemed inattentive to this communication. He was seeing it from another angle. "'But surely,' he said, "'there is a remnant of believers still. Despised, perhaps, but a remnant.' There was no remnant. The whole world followed that teacher of teachers, but no one worshipped him. On some old treasured buildings the wheel was still to be seen carved, often with the most fantastic decorative elaborations. And in museums and collections there were multitudes of pictures, images, charms, and the like. "'I don't understand this,' said Father Amerton. "'It is too terrible. I am at a loss. I do not understand.'" Six. A fair and rather slender man with a delicately beautiful face, whose name Mr. Barnstable was to learn later, was Lyon, presently took over from Earthred the burden of explaining and answering the questions of the earthlings. He was one of the educational coordinators in Utopia. He made it clear that the change over in Utopian affairs had been no sudden revolution. No new system of laws and customs, no new method of economic cooperation based on the idea of universal service to the common good had sprung abruptly into being complete and finished. Throughout a long period, before and during the last age of confusion, 
the foundations of the new state were laid by a growing multitude of inquirers and workers, having no set plan or preconceived method, but brought into unconscious cooperation by a common impulse to service and a common lucidity and veracity of mind. It was only towards the climax of the last age of confusion in Utopia that psychological science began to develop with any vigor, comparable to the vigor of the development of geographical and physical science during the preceding centuries. And the social and economic disorder which was checking experimental science and crippling the organized work of the universities was stimulating inquiry into the processes of human association and making it desperate and fearless. The impression given Mr. Barnstable was not of one of those violent changes which our world has learned to call revolutions, but of an increase of light, a dawn of new ideas, in which the things of the old order went on for a time with diminishing vigor, until people began, as a matter of common sense, to do the new things in the place of the old. The beginnings of the new order were in discussions, books, and psychological laboratories. The soil in which it grew was found in schools and colleges. The old order gave small rewards to the schoolmaster, but its dominant types were too busy with the struggle for wealth and power to take much heed of teaching. It was left to any man or woman who would give thought and labor without much hope of tangible rewards, to shape the world anew in the minds of the young. And they did so shape it. In a world ruled ostensibly by adventurer politicians, in a world where men came to power through floundering business enterprises and financial cunning, it was presently being taught and understood that extensive private property was socially a nuisance, and that the state could not do its work properly nor education produce its proper results side by side with a class of irresponsible rich people. For by their very nature they assailed, they corrupted, they undermined every state undertaking. Their flaunting existences distorted and disguised all the values of life. They had to go for the good of the race. "'Didn't they fight?' asked Mr. Catskill pugnaciously. They had fought irregularly but fiercely. The fight to delay or arrest the coming of the universal scientific state, the educational state in Utopia, had gone on as a conscious struggle for nearly five centuries. The fight against it was the fight of the greedy, passionate, prejudiced, and self-seeking men against the crystallization into concrete realities of this new idea of association for service. It was fought wherever ideas were spread. It was fought with dismissals and threats and boycotts and storms of violence, with lies and false accusations, with prosecutions and imprisonments, with lynching-rope, tar and feathers, paraffin, bludgeon and rifle, bomb and gun. But the service of the new idea that had been launched into the world never failed. It seized upon the men and women it needed with a compelling power. Before the scientific state was established in Utopia, more than a million martyrs had been killed for it, and those who had suffered lesser wrongs were beyond all reckoning. Point after point was won in education, in social laws, in economic method. No date could be fixed for the change. A time came when Utopia perceived that it was day and that a new order of things had replaced the old. "'So it must be,' said Mr. Barnstable, as though Utopia were not already present about him. "'So it must be.' A question was being answered. 
Every utopian child is taught to the full measure of its possibilities, and directed to the work that is indicated by its desires and capacity. It is born well. It is born of perfectly healthy parents. Its mother has chosen to bear it after due thought and preparation. It grows up under perfectly healthy conditions. Its natural impulses to play and learn are gratified by the subtlest educational methods. Hands, eyes, and limbs are given every opportunity of training and growth. It learns to draw, write, express itself, use a great variety of symbols to assist and extend its thought. Kindness and civility become ingrained habits, for all about it are kind and civil. And in particular, the growth of its imagination is watched and encouraged. It learns the wonderful history of its world and its race, how man has struggled and still struggles out of his earlier animal narrowness and egotism towards an empire over being that is still but faintly apprehended through dense veils of ignorance. All its desires are made fine. It learns from poetry, from example, and the love of those about it to lose its solicitude for itself in love. Its sexual passions are turned against its selfishness, its curiosity flowers into scientific passion, its combativeness is set to fight disorder, its inherent pride and ambition are directed towards an honorable share in the common achievement. It goes to the work that attracts it and chooses what it will do. If the individual is indolent, there is no great loss, there is plenty for all in Utopia, but then it will find no lovers, nor will it ever bear children, because no one in Utopia loves those who have neither energy nor distinction. There is much pride of the mate in Utopian love, and there is no idle rich society in Utopia, nor games and shows for the mere looker-on. There is nothing for the mere looker-on. It is a pleasant world indeed for holidays, but not for those who would continuously do nothing. For centuries now, Utopian science has been able to discriminate among births, and nearly every Utopian alive would have ranked as an energetic creative spirit in former days. There are few dull and no really defective people in Utopia. The idle strains, the people of lethargic dispositions or weak imaginations, have mostly died out. The melancholic type has taken its dismissal and gone. Spiteful and malignant characters are disappearing. The vast majority of Utopians are active, sanguine, inventive, receptive, and good-tempered. "'And you have not even a Parliament?' asked Mr. Burley, still incredulous. "'Utopia has no Parliament, no politics, no private wealth, no business competition, no police nor prisons, no lunatics, no defectives, nor cripples. And it has none of these things because it has schools and teachers who are all that schools and teachers can be. Politics, trade, and competition are the methods of adjustment of a crude society. Such methods of adjustment have been laid aside in Utopia for more than a thousand years. There is no rule nor government needed by adult Utopians, because all the rule and government they need they have had in childhood and youth. Said Lyon, Our education is our government. End of section 5